Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome back to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. Trade Bites is the podcast series that free dives fearlessly into the murky waters of UK trade policy, seeing what pearls of wisdom we can bring spluttering to the surface. And in this episode, we'll be turning our attention to the climate crisis which the planet is currently facing, and more specifically, the trade policy response to the push towards net zero in Europe and around the world. 20 years ago, the idea of a market price for carbon emissions would have sounded like a rather odd one. But today, a whole market infrastructure has been created in Europe and elsewhere, with carbon emission allowances being bought and sold as a way of taxing high emission producers and providing a financial incentive to encourage more climate-friendly production systems. But what if the country next door doesn't have a carbon pricing scheme and hence is able to produce less climate-friendly goods at a lower cost? Well, the European Commission has come up with a solution and a splendid acronym to go with it, CBAM, which stands for the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. But is CBAM a good idea? Will it work? Is it compatible with the rules of the World Trade Organization? Should the UK have its own post-Brexit version of CBAM? And how does anyone measure such a thing as a carbon footprint in the first place? To unravel many of these mysteries, I'm delighted to call upon a panel of guests who certainly know their CBAM from their ETS. It's a particular pleasure to welcome Dr. Yanis Zakriadis, Policy Officer at the European Commission's Director General for Taxation and the Customs Union. It's a big welcome back to Trade Bites for Dr. Emily Lidgate, Deputy Director of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. Welcome also to Dr. Camilla Jensen, who is a Senior Research Fellow in Economics at the University of Sussex and a Fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. And I'm joined too by Dr. Peter Holmes, who is also a Fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. Thanks everyone for joining us today. Janice, in very broad terms, what is CBAM? What does it aim to achieve? And why is it a high political priority for the Commission? I think to understand CBAM, it is important to appreciate the context within which it is proposed. Uh, as you also mentioned, and as you all know, uh, the European Green Deal that was proposed by the European Commission has set out an ambitious target to achieve a reduction of carbon emissions by 55% by 2030 compared to 1990 levels and to ensure that the EU becomes a climate-neutral continent by 2050. And the European climate law that was adopted in 2020 has made uh, these targets legally binding. Now, to deliver on those targets and those commitments, the Commission adopted uh, back in the summer of 2021 a package of proposals now, why, why was CBAM was proposed? As you rightly mentioned, uh, as the EU raises uh, its climate ambition, but there is less stringent environmental climate and climate policies in non-EU countries, there is a strong risk of what we call carbon leakage. And this is when companies, this emerges when companies based in the EU could move carbon intensive production abroad. 
in order to take advantage of luxury standards or to or that EU products are being replaced by more intense carbon intensive imports. And carbon leakage would imply that the EU and global climate efforts would be seriously undermined. So what CBAM tries to do, it tries to, to equalize the price of carbon between domestic products and imports in order to ensure that EU's climate objectives are not undermined by production relocating to countries with less ambitious policies. So in practical terms, and very, very briefly, CBAM is designed to mirror the EU ETS. It is uh, designed to be phased in gradually, and it will initially apply only to a selected number of goods that are at risk, at high risk of carbon leakage. These are iron and steel, cement, fertilizers, aluminium, and electricity generation. Well, thanks. That's an excellent summary. Emily Lidgate, what's been the response to the EU CBAM proposals from, from industry and from the countries outside of the EU? I think something like this will generate a certain degree of controversy, will it not? I would definitely characterize it as a controversial move from the EU. What this proposal does is, is it extends the prices that EU producers pay for these commodities to exporters. And there's a question there about whether that's fair. So in the Paris Agreement, there's something called common but differentiated responsibilities, which means that developing countries actually have less responsibility to mitigate climate change. And some countries, so for example, the basic grouping of countries, which is Brazil, South Africa, India, China have said, well, this proposal actually goes against that principle because, you know, our producers shouldn't have to pay the same as EU producers. So that's one axis of, of controversy. And then some of the uh, sort of climate allies of, of, you might describe them, developed country climate allies of the EU have also expressed concern about the fact that they'll also be facing a lot of new administrative barriers to export to the EU. So there's been a sense of concern about the additional barriers to trade that this will introduce. question which I've been asking myself is that the science of measuring carbon emissions is a relatively new one. I wonder whether it's actually mature enough as a science and settled enough to allow CBAM to function in the way that it's intended. I mean, are we not heading for endless arguments about what the actual carbon footprint is of any given product? I would say that uh, standards have been developed for measuring carbon footprint, but generally to be very accurate, I would say they are firm and industry specific, but also uh, scientists have developed methods to, uh, and there are accounts, uh, trade accounts, for example, showing the total carbon footprint of a product, but the level of exactness is not very high at the general level because it's very hard to aggregate up across different products and uh, activities and in particular countries. Just to clarify, because you mentioned carbon footprint, the CBAM will initially, our proposal is for CBAM to initially apply on direct emissions, so not on the full carbon footprint of particular products. So we'll focus on direct emissions generated in the production of products. Our proposal is to also include a reporting of indirect emissions, emissions from the consumption of electricity in the production of particular products, to see how and whether we can include the indirect emissions also in the future in CBA. And on that, I would say that in the EU, in the context of the ETS, there is already a wealth of experience, of technical experience in measuring carbon emissions at installation level. The question is, 
how we translate those from installation level to product level so that they can be applied in cross-border transactions on products. And this is something that we're working on. Peter Holmes, what is carbon leakage an actual thing? I mean, what is the empirical evidence to suggest that companies might be relocating their activities outside of Europe, for example, to take advantage of areas of lower carbon cost, if there is any empirical evidence? There has been quite a bit of study of this, and um, I used to work on this some years ago, and I've often wondered how far the evidence has changed. There's a recent IMF paper that came out last year, which suggested that perhaps the earlier finding that there wasn't as much propensity to move as people feared was perhaps still true, but there was a lot of potential for it to happen in the future. So in Britain, for example, we know that a very large amount of carbon emitting consumption, if you like, goods produced abroad, emitting a lot of carbon. This production has moved to China, is then imported into the UK. But it's moved to China anyway. And it's often quite difficult to know whether what's coming out of China is actually more carbon intensive than what would have been emitted had these things been produced in the UK. And there are two separate issues here. One is what happens to the environment? Because if uh, if you simply relocate production from the UK to or Europe to China, but it's still the same degree of carbon emissions, then it's not good for the environment, but it actually doesn't increase the, the emissions. But what it does do is harm the prospects of the producers in Britain. So we have a competitiveness issue independent of the environment issue. And uh, when CBAMs were first floated, there was a lot of scepticism. And I think there is still in the development community that scepticism that perhaps this is more about competitiveness issue rather than the environmental issue. But nevertheless, it is possible for things to move. And I think what's very interesting is that this IMF report of last summer suggested that even though the evidence hadn't flipped totally. The IMF was much more willing to consider that carbon leakage might be an issue to be dealt with by CBAMs than was the case a few years ago. But I would just like to respond to one of the points Yanis was making in response to your question about can we measure it, the carbon footprint of of products. And I think the really important thing is that Yanis stresses that at the moment, it's essentially basic products that are going to be taxed, steel or aluminium or fertilizers or electricity, where the carbon input can be measured directly. Following the work which Jim Rollo and I did a few years ago, the Swedish customs tried to actually figure out how easy it was to work out what the carbon content of a product was. And what they found was that it was pretty easy then to work out if you've got an ingot of raw steel which you can see where it came from uh, which plant it came from then you could know but the moment you start blending metals into alloys and that's you lose track of where the steel originally came from and there is a, a big issue about whether what you want to do is measure the emissions from what's exported or have some country related measure, because if a country has some high emission, some low emission production, and the result of the CBAM is it simply switches the uh, the high emission production for domestic sales, 
and exports to you the low emission production, then actually it hasn't worked too much. And again, when you come to something like a car, how do you know whether the steel in it was virgin steel or steel made from scrap and whether the aluminium was made from um, a hydro plant and the moment the product starts getting complicated the harder it is to actually measure the emissions content. This is the reason why we're starting with basic material products and we're not including complex downstream products into the mechanism. This is something that we may consider in the future but we need to study it, we need to see how that can be done properly and effectively. So far, we've been talking about what the EU is planning to do. I wonder how this affects us here in the UK. Emily, is the UK going to do a CBAM? What what has the British government said about its plans in this area? The British government is keeping its cards close to its chest. But I think the positioning of the UK here is, is really interesting because we're pretty much doing the same thing as the EU, only separately. So we have, um, I just, I checked the, the carbon prices today and both the EU and the UK are, are charging um, in the high 70s euros per ton of emissions. So that's, you know, that's, that's a high enough price to make industry start to squeal. And that's true for UK industry as well as EU industry. But the UK isn't actually part of the EU's emissions trading scheme. So it has a parallel scheme and it hasn't sort of linked up its scheme, which is the way that the the commission has proposed that the UK could be exempted from CBAM on a country basis, including all the sort of administrative requirements that come with it, which are quite, quite formidable. So the UK has to decide, are we going to not do CBAM at all? Are we going to link with the EU and thus be absolved of of charges? Or are we going to have a parallel CBAM mechanism? And so far, we're not sure which way they'll go. I can foresee an enormous political argument coming up about this because the UK government, as we know, is rather allergic to the idea of legislatively aligning itself with the EU on anything. And it also has a very comprehensive trade agreement with the EU, which has things like non-regression clauses in the area of environment and things like a level playing field agreements. So, Yanis, is there any reason that you can see why UK exporters should have to pay CBAM taxes based on the way things currently are at present? First of all, one clarification, CBAM is not a tax, it is a regulation. I am, I feel compelled <laughs> to make this clarification. CBAM is designed as an open mechanism. It allows for a number of flexibilities for any partner country, including the UK. So, The CBAN obligation is being determined, first of all, in terms of actual emissions of the exporters, which means that if the exporters have adopted green technologies and can reduce their emissions, then they will be able to reduce their obligations. If the partner country has adopted more stringent regulations in order to force its industry to produce in more greener methods, this would also reduce actual emissions. So therefore, the emission content of the products exported to the EU will be reduced, and therefore the CBAM obligation will also be reduced. And the second flexibility is, as mentioned by Emily, is the issue of the carbon price. CBAM allows for the possibility of reducing the CBAM obligation should an effective explicit carbon price, be that in the form of a carbon tax or a national ETS, be applicable in the, in the home country. If the exporters can prove that they've paid the price 
in their home country, this will be accounted for in the CBAM obligation. It will reduce the obligation and may even minimize the obligation should the price be equivalent or equal to that of the, of the EU. As I understand it, there are two separate problems that CBAMs could raise for British exporters. The first is the cost of paying the CBAMs. And if we are closely aligned, even if it's just in parallel, then you may be able to find a way of exempting yourself from the CBAM charges. But the second thing is the obligation to prove it. So one of the biggest dangers for EU, for British industry, I mean, selling into the EU, seems to me to be that we may find ourselves naturally and sensibly aligning in the sense of being similar to what the EU's done, but not actually formally agreeing to being part of the equivalent of the EU ETS, in which case firms won't be liable for CBAMs, but they'll have possibly even transaction by transaction to prove that uh, they're not liable. It's a bit like the issue of non, uh, no mutual recognition of testing and certification in, in the uh, TVT area. So is that an issue? On the pricing issue, what the proposal or the Commission's proposal allows for is for the possibility for the EU to enter into agreements bilateral with countries that apply a carbon price in order that there is a, a recognition in order for this price is more easily recognized in, in bilateral transactions. So there is this possibility that there is this flexibility for bilateral agreements for the carbon price. For the reporting and the verification of emissions, Unless there's a full integration to the EUETS or linking with the EUETS, the exporters of those products will still need to um, report, verify and monitor the embedded emissions in those products. I also just wanted to relate this case about aluminium and potential carbon leakage in aluminium and this problem it entails. So uh, we've been doing a little bit of uh, research about that case. And there could be the issue, for example, that there also goes a lot of trust into this regulation with the third countries. Because can you trust, for example, when they say, ah, but this product, for example, is produced on hydropower, so it doesn't contain any emissions. So what is the plan to deal with those kind of issues? As I mentioned, CBAM is initially being proposed to focus on direct emissions, not on indirect emissions, which are, for the case of aluminium, the biggest concern, if you like, also in the context of risks of resource shuffling. Now, what we are proposing is that we will lay out specific rules whereby installations in third countries will be calculating, will be monitoring and reporting their emissions. And this will need to be verified with accredited verifiers that uh, will need to, to also visit the installations and, and do checks and ensure that you know these, these emissions will be as reported. In any system where in any carbon adjustment mechanism that does not use default values, the risk of resource shuffling is there. We are aware of this risk, but what we are trying to do is to lay out specific rules in order for the verification to be done properly. And of course, we will be monitoring the mechanism as it's being implemented in the coming years and uh, you know where there is wrongdoing and where there is misaccounting or uh, not accounting the embedded carbon properly, we will be taking action to adjust the mechanism. 
Okay, Emily, you mentioned that the UK has its own emissions trading scheme, which bears quite a strong resemblance to that of the EU in terms of the way it functions. And you mentioned that the UK could potentially link its ETS scheme with that of the EU and thus be pretty much exempted from the scope of the CBAM. What do you think is the likelihood of that happening, both from a technical point of view and perhaps more relevantly from a political point of view? So, yeah, just to underscore, so the UK, because it has the same carbon pricing as the EU in practice, if not in law, probably won't have to pay, but it will have to undertake an extensive series of regulatory compliance checks, which include things like, you know, registering with an authority, um, calculating its embedded emissions to prove that it's compliant, and then having third-party certification. And considering that there's so much trade between the UK and the EU, this is still, you know, a serious consideration for UK exporters, one of the most exposed countries in, in a bureaucratic sense, at least. So as we were saying before, one of the things that the UK could do is just sort of, as, as long as we have the same, more or less the same sectoral coverage and more or less the same prices, we might as well just have the same system through this linking negotiation. Um, And I think politically, it's like so many things between the UK and the EU right now, where we could save ourselves so many trade headaches by just formally agreeing to do the same thing. But that's definitely not the direction of travel that the UK government has set out for itself post-Brexit. At least conceptually, independence is very important. So, you know, we're we're probably going to have to bear the brunt of those, I, I would guess. I mean, I think, you know, it also gets harder and harder to read. There's sort of technical considerations about relinking. So the longer we wait, the harder it is because the EU is looking to change its sectoral coverage. The UK is looking to change its sectoral coverage. They may no longer converge. I think there are things that the UK got away with as an EU member state, like having a carbon floor sort of controlled aspect to certain elements of the carbon pricing that the EU didn't like. So I think even though it seems obvious, it's definitely not in any sense kind of a given that we would do this. I wonder if Yanis can give us any idea of how big these C-bounds are going to be. I think, are we likely to be talking about, for example, on iron and steel, 5%, uh, 10%? Do we have some idea of the orders of magnitude? How much of a nuisance the actual tariffs are going to be? It's not an easy question because, as I explained, you shouldn't be thinking CBAM as a tariff. CBAM is a climate measure and it applies on emissions It targets companies, it it doesn't target countries. So it will depend a lot on which companies export and how green these products are that are exported into the EU. The differences are quite stark to the simple trade flows. I mean, for the UK, CBAM goods amount collectively to about 5 billion worth of exports. And these are about, uh, have here, uh, about 2.5% of total exports to the EU. Now, What that means in terms of obligation, it depends on the emission intensity of those products and the price, the applicable price of the CBAM at the time of export. So it's a bit more complicated in the sense of simply saying that, you know, the the overall CBAM obligation will correspond to that amount of the total trade flows. I'd like to wind up by asking each of you in turn basically the same question, which is that the climate issue is clearly one that's not going to go away. So is there any prospect of a global emissions trading system evolving, one that might have a scope such that carbon border adjustment mechanisms perhaps become over time almost unnecessary and irrelevant? 
I mean, obviously, this is a long-term aspiration, but is it something that we might be moving towards? Camilla, can I start with you? What do you think? I do a lot of research about multinational firms. So, of course, I tend to have a little bit the perspective that this is a lot about actually the EU's extraterritorial power in terms of being able to regulate its own firms. Or that's that's where you could say the, the responsibility aspect of it is important. So that's where I see it's promising. Escalating to the global level, I think that's very optimistic also because of the current geopolitical lines that we are seeing drawn. And there are very different interests across those lines. So I think it's more maybe like the the G20 would try to push for a carbon floor as they have done in international taxation. Peter, do you think a G20 carbon floor might be the way to go on this? I think that's a really useful idea, but I think it is, I'll be a bit more optimistic because there have been quite a few discussions in this area, whether they'll go anywhere, I don't know, but we've had the EU agreement on the general principle linked to the steel agreement that the EU and the US agreed they would have some sort of common arrangement, which the UK has to decide whether or not it wants to go along with. And what is really interesting is that the Chinese have toyed at various times with negotiating some sort of alignment of their carbon emissions regime, which is actually, I think, quite active. They've talked to the EU. They've also talked to the United States. If you had systems where the US, the EU and the Chinese all agreed to apply certain principles, that takes account of a very large part of the world and uh, others might be obliged to go along. So I think it's something that may well be talked about in the future. Emily, how international do you think carbon pricing currently is and how internationalised could the carbon trading network become? Well, First of all, the U.S. doesn't even price carbon on a national level. So there's a whole other discussion and worm can of worms there about whether you can recognize things like performance standards as equivalent to pricing. In terms of creating a global carbon price or a global carbon market, that is an explicit aim of, of the Paris Agreement. Um, and there's sort of two, two routes to that. One is through linking ETS schemes. And the other is creating something like the sort of Kyoto Cleaner Development Mechanism, which is basically countries paying for other countries to do uh, low carbon development. So it's definitely an active area. But I think sort of one thing we can say from watching the EU's experience with the emissions trading scheme, which started out just being very, very cheap. <laughs> and so it was it was very heavily criticized. And now it's very, very expensive. And what's what's created the ability for it to be this really robust carbon price, which does what carbon prices are supposed to do, which is make industries divest of coal and dirty technologies and change. And also, incidentally, what is calling industries to cry for carbon border adjustment to begin with. So what we've learned is that having like a really strong regulator is really important to that. So the commission has introduced various strategies to try to regulate the number of permits on the market, and and that helps drive the price up. So if you try to think about extending that wisdom globally, just something like the, you know, the Paris Agreement, which is this top, you know, bottom-up voluntary approach, how do you even verify that a country has declared its national emissions, you know, robustly, and therefore, you know, can we have faith in that as the basis of a market with permits to sell or permits to buy? So I think there's It's a really interesting area, but a lot of challenges. And Yanis, do you dream of a future where CBAM is no longer necessary? I think it would would have been good if CBAMs were not necessary. 
But as you said, the, the climate emergency is here. Discussions are ongoing at international level, and it is indeed promising that there are discussions since CBAM has been proposed, even in, in a number of partner countries, but also at the global level. However, until these discussions mature and, uh, and fruition into something more concrete, I'm afraid that the uh, CBAM is necessary to ensure that uh, climate ambition uh, is, is not being compromised by carbon leakage and does not lead to increase in emissions globally. Well, there we have to wrap up our podcast today. So it just remains for me to say many thanks indeed to my guests, to Yanis Zachariadis, to Emily Lidgate, to Camelia Jensen, and to Peter Holmes. And many thanks to all of you for listening. It's been great to have your company. Join us again soon for the next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.